Um, let me pray for us as we begin today. Lord, we celebrate um, the gathering of your people uh, in its rich diversity, um, in its joy, uh, and in our pains. We're grateful that uh, church by church around the world, you see us um, with all of our flaws and missteps, um, with all of our uh, angularity and strangeness, with all of um, our hopefulness and holiness, and you delight in it because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And so um, we commit ourselves to you. Would you speak to us? Would you um, transform us? And then would you unite us with the church that gathers this day around the world? Um, having begun hours ago in Asia, and then in Africa, and then in Latin America, and now kind of at the tail end of what is this day, uh, we in North America give you thanks. And we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, one of the most... Uh, unusual sermon illustrations I've ever heard of was given by a woman named Barbara Boyd. Uh, Barbara was a very, or is a very dignified woman. I think of her a lot like Barbara Deal, right? Um, but, you know, usually immaculately put together, um, thoughtful, um, direct, and clear. And one day she was giving a Bible exposition at a student camp. She picked up her Bible and just threw it into the middle of the room and screamed, It's alive! And, um, it was so out of character for her <laughs> that the room just shook. But she was trying to make a point that so often when we come to study the scripture, we just assume uh, that it's this text that we're going to read, this ancient book of stories uh, that we need to explain somehow. And what she wanted to communicate was the excitement, the danger, the wildness of what happens when the word is opened. Um, and it's critical, I think, for us, as you think about something like the Feast of Tabernacles, to understand the kind of crazy wildness about how we interact with Scripture, because we're convinced as a church that as we gather and we hear the word read to us, far more than taught, right, as we hear the word read to us, as we study it um, in our um, scattered churches, as we encounter it in Sunday school, uh, in our personal devotional times, however you encounter the word of God, that it has power, that it's transformative, that it literally changes things uh, because it is alive. And if we don't understand that, then we're actually going to miss a critical component of what happens when we come together here. And I think we're going to miss a critical component of what we deeply believe as Christians. I appreciated the way actually Barbara began her prayer as she acknowledged the beauty of the world around us. Because as Christians, we're absolutely convinced that the physical world, right, the concrete things that we experience actually communicate the truths about who God is. That we don't worship in a disembodied sort of way, but profoundly in the beauty of nature and the artwork um, that Nancy was talking about, as you think about creation in, um, oh, sorry, Pat. I shifted uh, names as I was thinking. Um, as, as we share communion in bread um, and in the vine, we actually experience spiritual transformation. I appreciate what uh, Mickey said about uh, the gym. The, the reality is, right, there's something about the physicality of the world that God uses to communicate his truth, his power and his beauty to us. We don't worship in a disembodied way. That's why we sing, right? Because if we, if we didn't believe that, we just say, listen to the music and just sit quietly. But we actually expect embodied responses to the truth of what God has done 
so that our minds, our bodies, and our hearts unite in what we do. And so we're, I'd love for us to look at Nehemiah 8, uh, part of which was read to us, as we can kind of continue the story of Ezra. Um, I was here two weeks ago, and you'll remember Ezra had waited um, 60 years after people had been sent back to Jerusalem, uh, when all of a sudden, out of, I think, a deep conviction of what Scripture was saying, and out of opportune moment, and out of prayer, um, he seeks a commissioning to go back and to uh, finish the temple rebuilding and uh, reinvigorate the temple sacrifices. Sixteen years later, the temple's been rebuilt, the sacrifices are occurring, and the story of Nehemiah starts. And Nehemiah hears that the walls have still not been rebuilt, and he's outraged and hurt and angered by this. And so he goes to the next Persian king to say, would you give me an opportunity to go rebuild the walls so that the city in which the temple of my God um, dwells will be a glorious city, will be the kind of city which deserves this kind of place of worship. And so Nehemiah um, casts vision to the people of Jerusalem, recommissions them, and then for 54 days or so, right, for about two months, they rebuild the walls. And the walls are now finished, and you pick up the story in chapter 8, when Ezra remakes his appearance. Um, so 52 days after finishing the wall, it's the beginning of the New Year celebration, Rosh Hashanah, which is coming up uh, just about a month or two months from now um, on the Jewish calendar. When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people assembled as one man, as in one body, in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Um, and what I'd love for you to hear as we look at verses 2 through 5 is, um, or 2 through 8, the, the deep way that the people of God value the word of God in this moment. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who can understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now think about what's happening, right? Um, if you've been living in Jerusalem at this time, you've had years where nothing has happened since Ezra's arrived, right? It's 16 years later. And somehow Nehemiah has reinvigorated you. You've spent 52 days working hard rebuilding stone walls. You've labored day and night, and what the rest of Nehemiah tells you is you've been laboring, and some of you are carrying swords while you're working the stonework because you're afraid of attacks from the people around you who don't want Jerusalem to rebuilt, to be rebuilt, who don't want the temple to be protected in this way. And so you're standing guard and you're building. You've been gathered with your families, working the walls. Would your first response be, we really need a sermon right now? <clears throat> it wouldn't be for me, right? I'd be like, I think it's the appropriate thing is a Sabbath. A long, long Sabbath filled with naps, maybe a massage or two, long steeps in hot pools, whatever it takes. We've worked hard for 52 days. But there's something about the deep value of the word of God that when the people of God see the walls of the city of God complete, their first response is, we need to hear the voice of God. And they request this reading, and universally they come to hear. What, what's fascinating about it, it's not just the men. Right, who you'd expect in the Old Testament. It's the men and the women. The whole community come together, including everybody who could understand. So you're like, who's left if you're not a man or a woman? 
and still able to long for it. And I suspect it was kind of the older children, right? Those who really weren't adults yet, but who had comprehension what they've decided as the people of God. From dawn, um, right, from dawn to noon, they're all paying attention. What they've decided is the city of God is not complete until the word of God has been proclaimed. The temple of God is not sufficient as a place of worship until the word of God is open to us. And so um, for, I don't know, six hours, they hear what must have been the world's longest sermon. And they're attentive and eager. I, re I don't know about you, right? I, I'm a professional. I, I get to study scripture as part of my job. Um, and then I get to talk about scripture as part of my job. I don't know that I come to scripture with that kind of longing. That desperate sense of eagerness. Where after 52 days of hard, exhausting labor, my first response would be, as a community, let's listen to Jesus now. Let's long to hear his voice, right? I think about like, oh, I have to do my daily Bible reading. And while I know God is going to speak to me and encourage my heart, there's a kind of burdensomeness about it at times. Um, I try to read it on my app on, in the subway. And if I have a bad connection, I can't get the right page open, I just feel incredibly discouraged. When I think about, oh my gosh, I have to listen to a sermon, even one I might be giving myself. I, the level of eagerness and things like, oh, I can't wait to the sermon this Sunday, uh, seems low. I don't know that I've ever fought my way to a Bible study. <laughs> but when you have an expectation that God will speak, that your life will be changed. The entire community gathers. I'm just convicted. Um, and it reminds me not only of the need for my own heart to change, right, that I need to value the word of God this way, but um, it makes me wonder about uh, the millions, hundreds of millions of people who don't have scripture yet, who can't hear it in a language they easily understand. Um, the American Bible Society has recently released a series of videos that talked about um, it's true we need to alleviate physical poverty, but how about um, Bible poverty in the world? It's why we as a church, right, both here and around the world, are so highly committed to Wycliffe and other groups that translate scripture regularly. Um, how desperately we need to hear God's voice. And I want you to notice, it's not just that they get together, right? Because it's one thing to go, okay, we're all going to have a big meeting. We're going to hear the scriptures, and we might all show up. But listen, watch how they respond. Um, because they long to engage with it. So um, they prepare to communicate it. So Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. So they've prepared for this, even while they're building the walls. Um, they've created this high platform, essentially a stage, a podium for him. And beside him on his right stood um, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, um, Uriah, uh, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were uh, Pedadiah, Mishael, Malkijah, um, Hashem, Hash, Badna, Badna, sorry, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And then Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Have you ever been at a place um, when somebody walks to the, into the room or comes to the podium, and spontaneously, not because they're supposed to, but because they want to, they just rise and immediately give a standing ovation? Right? Um, this is, I watched this happen. Um, at a missions conference I was at, and it was one of those senior saints in the mission movement, a man Dave, Dave, uh, named David Aidney. Grew up um, in China, part of uh, China Inland Mission, then OMF, 
Um, many of us knew his story, and when he walked in the room, people recognized who he was, and then just spontaneously, out of a sense of deep gratitude for what he had done, out of deep respect for the life that he lived, the room just stood and gave him a standing. And um, I got teary. And there's something moving to me when those kind of things happen, right? Because when, the, when a room recognizes um, the value and dignity and honor that they want to give somebody and then spontaneously give it, there's just something beautiful about that moment. And when they see the book of the word of the law open, the whole of the people of Israel just think, I have to stand for this. This is not a sitting down, hanging out moment. We're going to show reverence and dignity and honor. Um, and then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Right? The enthusiasm begins to build. And then it wasn't enough that we showed honor by standing. All of a sudden, then uh, they bow down and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Um, spontaneously the people of God both say, this is a holy moment, we're going to hear from the Lord, and then they throw themselves down. And then what happens is Ezra is not content with people just responding to the mere fact of the word of God. He wants to understand the word of God, right? The Levites, uh, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Janim, Akub, uh, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Amasiah, Kalitia, Azariah, uh, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. And so what seems to be happening is Ezra would read the law, and then this group of people would fan out into the crowd and go, did you understand what you just heard? And they take a pause from the reading of the law in, in kind of really large, small groups. Um, medium, I don't know what size group they would be, right? But in larger communities, they okay, this is what the word of the Lord meant to us. This is what it means to us now. Um, they are convinced it's not enough just to hear it spoken. They want to understand it, right? This isn't a mystical text that you kind of let roll over your mind like <clears throat> a mantra of some sort. The scriptures, we believe, are God's attempt to communicate to us through human language who he is and what he's about. We're convinced as a people that God didn't just dictate this in some kind of heavenly language that we had to translate, but he used human authors to fully express what, it, what they understood and they knew and who they were in the text and somehow so superintended and guided that process that everything they wrote was exactly what he intended them to write. And so it's a book which we can study like any other human book because it's written by people embedded in a particular history and context and culture. <clears throat> But then we respond to it as if it were different than every other human book, because it's not just some human being's writings, but somehow, out of his mercy, God said everything they communicate is exactly what I want you to know about who I am, what I'm about, and what I'm going to do. And we rejoice in a belief that we have a God who speaks, right? You have to value the word of God and delight in it in this way if you're convinced that this is true. If this is just another book of good advice or good fables, we shouldn't be gathering here. If this is just another a great book of philosophy and aphorisms that you can study in college, which many colleges do, um, really, we could all be home having brunch, a delightful leisurely meal, maybe with a newspaper, um, in the quiet of our home with lovely music flowing around. We wouldn't have to be here. 
We're convinced God speaks. God desires to communicate who he is and what he's about through this text. And so you value the word of God. And then if you value it, you have to respond to it in a particular way. And I want you to notice how they respond. And this is all going to get us to the Feast of Tabernacles in just a little bit. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the word of the Lord. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. <clears throat> and then um, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. Notice the effect of scripture on these folk, right? They hear the book of the law, and the reality is you can't hear about the book of the law. You can't hear about what God desires and who he is without being deeply convicted of your sin, because this holiness and our lack of holiness become really clear. I think Barbara prayed that beautifully this morning uh, in the pastoral prayer, right? Most of us come here, I think, far more aware of our brokenness and our failures, our half-heartedness and um, our doubts than we do out of a sense of deep sense of righteousness, wholeness, uh, delight and joy and confidence. But what's interesting is, right, as they're mourning, they're thinking, oh my gosh, if this is truly what, who God is like and who we're to be called, and how, we are so far from that. The effect of scripture is one, it judges their hearts and their actions and their postures, doesn't it? Right? They're, they're acknowledging scripture stands above them and has evaluated them and found them wanting. What's really striking to me, though, is not just that scripture made them feel guilty because we're used to that. <laughs> is that scripture also then defines their response, because as soon as they begin to see the people of God weeping and mourning, Ezra the priest goes, wait, wait, wait. The law tells us about this day, right? It's New Year's. It's the Feast of Trumpets. This is not a day of weeping. This is not a day of crying. This is a day of rejoicing. So stop. The instinctive response of your heart right now and allow scripture to shape the response of your heart. Because not every, oh, thank you, not everything that we feel is always what God wants us to feel at that moment. And occasionally what we have to do is say, scripture is going to guide the way that my heart responds to the situation. So it's not just that scripture judges their hearts, scripture then defines the way they're going to respond. Because the God honoring response to his truth is the response God desires from us. And so it's right that they feel grief, and then what they allow themselves to do is say, but scripture is telling us right now that what he wants is rejoicing, so we're going to choose to rejoice at this moment. Right? There's a discipline about that, that while foreign to some of us, is critical to all of us. And so they choose to rejoice. And then the amazing thing is, as they choose to rejoice in verse 12, right, um, there's great joy throughout the community, as not just what they know to be true is shaped by scripture, but their emotions are being shaped by scripture, then their behavior is being shaped by scripture. Nehemiah goes, this is a day of celebration, so go eat fantastic food. Which, right, as I as a Chinese person love those kind of commands. <laughs> and some people may be too poor, unprepared, or foreign to us to have known to prepare fantastic food for this feast, so share it with the people who don't have it yet. Right? He's, he's looking out for the entire community. And this is a day of rejoicing. We're hearing the voice of the Lord. We're delighting in his good work. This is a new year and a new day, is essentially what he's saying. 
Um, what I love about this response to scripture is it's very different from the very transactional way that we can approach scripture otherwise. Right? There's one way of approaching scripture is that you study it. And the danger of studying scripture is it makes you the subject and scripture the object. And you're in control. Right? So you read it, you study it, you master the text is often how we talk about those kind of things. And then you're in control of it. And that's never our posture to scripture, that we're in control of it. Because it's alive. It actually desires to be in control of us, as Nehemiah and his friends point out. It's telling that they don't just read the scriptures for information. Oh, that's fascinating what God did among the people of Israel during the Exodus. How fascinating, how illuminating. Let's just talk about it, right? They sought not just information, but transformation. They wanted to be changed by their encounter with the text. It's interesting to me that they don't read it just for blessings and promises, um, like those terrible Bible promise uh, books and other things, which I think have a certain purpose, a very narrow purpose. But the problem is if you only look at the Bible for its promises and its encouragements, you'll miss out on all the other things it has to say to us. It's not chicken soup for the soul. Um, it's a bracing, complete meal. And so we have to respond to it, be transformed by it, allow it to master us. I remember um, as a freshman in college, uh, I was, or a sophomore in college, I was preparing a Bible study in the Gospel of Mark. And we were working our way through the Gospel. And uh, one of the things they taught me um, as I was preparing Bible study right, is not only do you study it, right, understand how the story works, how the grammar works, um, where it fits in the context. Part of what they invite you to do is, uh, what would it mean to walk into it and imagine it happening so that you're using all of your senses in Bible study? And I remember I was reading about um, the leper being healed by Jesus in the first chapter of Mark. And the leper comes up to Jesus, if you remember the story, and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And uh, one of the study text that I was using point out what's interesting is the leper has no question, does not even question whether Jesus has the power to heal. He questions Jesus's willingness to heal. And intellectually, right, this was not a difficult text, but I tried to put myself in the position of what would it be like to be a leper who actually doubts whether Jesus loves you enough, cares for you enough, desires your wholeness and the sense of desperation you must feel to ask a question like this. And then what would it mean when Jesus doesn't just say, from afar with a leper, unclean, as you may be, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to clean you, right, go away. But actually, before he even heals the leper, reaches out to touch him, right, to touch this man who may not have been touched by another living person for years or decades at a time, who's desperately asking the question, not just, I know you have the power, but are you willing, are you willing to connect with me deeply enough to change me? And rather than just verbally saying it, Jesus physically reaches out to him. I often wondered what was more healing, was it the physical touch or the actual act of the miracle of transformation? Uh, and I remember being a really lonely sophomore in college. Um, I would just go back to my room and just feel incredibly isolated and also to believe I worship a savior who not only would heal me from afar, but who, if he was given the opportunity, would actually reach out to touch me physically. 
to reintegrate me into community, to reconnect me physically and emotionally and spiritually. And I remember just crying. I was sitting on the quad of the University of Chicago, and I just thought, this is actually what I desperately needed to know and hear. Because I remember thinking up to that point in my life, I'd be happy just to be kind of an errand boy for God, right? Do what I'm told to do. That's very satisfying. I'm Chinese-American, so duty is very satisfying to me. And I remember actually saying out loud one time, it was kind of a joke, but it was somewhat serious. It would be okay if God never even said, I love you, because it would just be good enough to work for him. Um, and it's true, at one deeply satisfying level, it would be how much more amazing it was for me at that moment to actually go, but God's not willing to stop with that. And it was as I let go of trying to master the text and allow the text to master me, as I stopped reading it for information and began to desire transformation, as I imagined what was happening, the text mastered me. My relationship with Jesus changed. I was healed in ways I didn't know I needed to be healed. That's how we respond to the word of the Lord. Yay, absolutely. In the end, though, right, it's not just enough that we do that, but in the end, you got, you got to obey. And that's the verses that Dave read to us at the end. And so the leaders gather for more intensive study, the word beginning in verses 13 through 15. And all of a sudden, they occur. It's, you know, it's, um, it's Rosh Hashanah, it's New Year's, and so it's the Feast of Trumpets. The trumpets remind us of the voice of the Lord. We've heard the voice of the Lord through the word of God. And the feast that's coming up... <clears throat> Almost immediately then is going to be the Feast of Booths, Sukkoth, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so then they say, go quickly, let's do what the text commands us to do. Now, this is a pretty obscure um, holiday <clears throat> in some ways, or it's very odd at, the, at least. Um, the command is something like this. So you all live in houses now that we've settled in uh, Israel. I want you to live in tents. Actually, take branches and like... Let's build a tent city for ourselves. For seven days, I'd like you to leave your houses and go live in a tent to remind yourself that I am the God who brought you through 40 years of walking through the wilderness into the promised land. I brought you from tents into the houses. And so for one week a year, I want you to go back to a tent to remind yourself from where you came. I want you to remind yourself that I provided for you. For 40 years, I fed you, I clothed you, and I gave you water to drink. You lacked nothing in that period and I'm still the God who's with you today, right? I want to remind you as you live in these tabernacles, these tents, that I was a God who met you, commanded you, and protected you while I lived in a tabernacle among you in the very middle of the camp with a pillar of fire by, day, I mean, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. I will never leave you or forsake you because I dwelt among you in a tabernacle as well. So for one week out of the year, live in a tabernacle, live in this tent, remind yourself of what I did for you, who I am to you, and who I will continue to be to you. And to this day, if any of you know faithfully Orthodox Jews, they will build a tabernacle. And the super Orthodox will live in it. At the University of Chicago, I remember the Hillel Foundation built um, a kind of, it was a large tabernacle, and they would do uh, meals and other things in it, uh, in the backyard of their house, to remind themselves of this fact. And what Nehemiah tells us, and Dave read to us, is that this was the most significant experience of the Feast of Tabernacles since Joshua's time. That somehow over a couple hundred year period, they kind of lost track of the holiday. And they may have thrown up a pup tent here or there, but all of a sudden, for the first time in a long time in Israel's history, they all decide to celebrate this way together. And it makes sense, right? 
When the people of Israel entered the land for the first time after the Exodus, God said, I want you to live in tents. And now God's brought them back from the exile, brought them back to the land of Israel and said, I want you to live in tents. Whether it's Exodus or exile, I have been in charge. I have provided you and cared for you. Whether you're fleeing a land that oppressed you or whether I bring you out of a place of judgment, I am here for you. Everything you need to know about the future is conditioned on what you already know about me from the past. And the people of God define their existence as a people in Jerusalem, not on conquest, but on their responsiveness to the word of God. The people of God are defined less by the land and location that they're in, and far more defined by how they respond to the word of God and the way they choose to apply it. And so they all respond and apply. And I think this is critical for us, right? Because um, if you don't apply what you know about scripture, it's going to go bad on you. Or the way I've just, I often describe it to college students is, you've been fed much week after week, day after day. And unless what you've been fed is turned into the muscle of practice, it will turn into the fat that will choke off your heart, burden your body, and eventually weigh down your soul. For most of us, what we don't need is a new word from God. What we need is obedience to the words we've already heard. And the great thing I think about obedience is that when you obey, you experience great joy. If you read through Nehemiah 8, over and over it talks about the great joy they had. In fact, um, in verse 17, that's actually their response. So the people went out in verse 16 and brought back branches and built for them booths on their own roofs and the courtyards and the courts of the house of God. I mean, everywhere. There are tabernacles everywhere. And um, it says at the end of verse 17, and their joy was very great. Uh, why would that be great joy? I mean, you finally built your city. You finally have a house to live in. Why would tents be so great? Your joy is great because you're living out the reality of who God is. You're reminding yourself of his faithfulness. You're experiencing not just an intellectual way, not just an emotional way, not just in a kind of spiritual disembodied way, but in a physical concrete way when you live in that tabernacle, you say, he provided for us. He provided us hundreds of years ago as we wandered through the desert. He provided for us as a people in exile. He will provide for us again. That's why actually an appropriate response to a feast because the Christian church has let go of a lot of its feasts. We sort of do Advent. We have a quick Christmas celebration and Easter and Good Friday thing. Our, our really significant equivalent of the feasts, which come about with striking regularity in the Jewish calendar, is communion. We're convinced when we take the bread and pick up the cup that in the physical elements, of these two very concrete, everyday sort of things in the Jewish world, God meets us. Every week or every month, however your tradition has you taking communion, right? and I think that this church is every month, we stop and go, God forgave our sins ultimately on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he promises to make into our hearts a new covenant through his spirit as we take this cup together. 
it was true for the people of God 2,000 years ago. It was sufficient for them. It's been sufficient for me up until this point. It will be sufficient for me in the days to come. Whether we're in exile right now or you feel like you're in the middle of an exodus or you feel profoundly settled in the land that God has called you to, once a month you come back together and you say, physically, not just spiritually, not just intellectually, not just emotionally, but concretely, this is how I know God has forgiven me. His body was broken on my behalf. This is how I know that the resurrection power is at life in me because I take this cup. And the very physical part of the world begins to remind us and renew us in the spiritual realities that we have. And the word of God defines that for us, it shapes it for us, and it invites us to respond. It's one of the reasons I loved how um, Mickey said about the djembe, right? It's a, a profoundly spiritual healing thing. Uh, because if you've ever heard somebody play a djembe well, and, and Mickey plays it well from the little I've been able to hear, um, there's a wealth of tones and sounds of dryness and of fullness, of sharp notes and of full notes, of high notes and of low notes. Um, and there's something about the physicality of the completeness of our experience that God desires us to encounter. Brothers and sisters, the joy of the Feast of Tabernacles um, is that God no longer just um, drifts apart from us, but tabernacles with us, invites us to remember how he dwelt with us, provided for our spiritual ancestors in multiple places and times, and will provide for us again. And the way we really celebrate that is to take communion, not just for now, but we'll continue to do it until he returns, when this kind of exile and exodus experience we have will be resolved and will have finally been brought home into his presence. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, show mercy to us as we begin to approach your table. Oh, why do I even say that? You've already shown mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Help us to um, appropriate that mercy and not be weighed down by our sins, but instead approach your table with gladness and rejoicing because you have forgiven our sins. You accept us and you welcome us. And so we approach soberly knowing our sins brought you there and um, with great rejoicing and freedom because your resurrection power has reminded us that um, our sin does not have the last word, but you do. It is finished, and we are forgiven. Amen.